Welcome to the MLHS podcast. My name's Ian Tullock, as always. I'm here with Anthony Petrielli. And joining us today is another member of the MLHS family. I've had him on podcasts in years past. Gus Katsaros is joining us today. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me back on, guys. Always a pleasure. Always love talking tactics with you, trying to break down some of the finer points of hockey. We're four games into the Leafs season right now. Uh, I know Anthony is very impressed with Mitch Marner's performance, so I'll, I'll lead off with you. I haven't said a thoughts? single bad thing yet. It's always like Anthony is the negative guy, and I haven't said a single thing yet, and I just get put on a platter like I'm about to shit on the guy. I actually just feel bad for him, to be honest. I, I teed it up for you. I, I gave you a Mitch him. Marner. I gave you a Jason Spezza cross-seam pass, but no one's finishing on these passes for him. I don't even think he's been – I don't even think he's been, like, bad. He just – it hasn't gone his way. But the body language, as it's not going his way, has started to get worse and worse. Like it's almost reminiscent of like Phil Kessel ten years ago, and he would go on his slumps, and you you start to see a little bit more stick banging, head rolling, eye rolling, looking up at the sky. Like I just feel bad. Like just, like at some point, you just want something to go right for him. You know. The problem I think that we all have with. Um, Marner's early season performance, which I really don't think is really that bad of a thing, is just the way that the playoffs ended and this negativity surrounding Marner. So you have yeah. this bad aura, you have a bad start, there are circumstances behind both, but it's easy to be negative and it's easy to say, well, Marner is just being ass or, or it's the continuation or whatever the case is. But Marner hasn't been anything other than Mitch Marner. He's done everything that he did last year. He was just as effective as just not going in the net. So at the same time, not being with Matthews, this is a, a critical point because I think from a balanced perspective, if I wanted to see the least perfectly balanced, you put Marner on a completely different line and then you just let three lines run rampant um, throughout the league. It's pretty clear that even Nylander and, and Tavares, they could probably be split up, but Matthews drives his own line. Nylander could drive his own line. Marner should be able to drive his own line. That's one of the frustrating things with this team is that I really think they're going to top six load it the entire season when I think there's a way to creatively make sure that you always have one star player on the ice carrying a line. And at the end of the day, all the research shows that it's star players who drive results. You can play an elite player with a one or two million dollar player and get similar results to a team playing three guys who make about five million dollars. So it's, it's the star players who drive the results. So I think this is where your camp point comes into play. and. For regular listeners, you will know Ian took a shit on the camp signing since day one, and I've basically taken a shit on Ian since he's done that ever since, which I will stand by. He's a good center for what he does, and it's hard to Marcus Kruger is probably the comp I'd make. Yeah, but to be honest, like I've been watching him too this week, and I like camp. I'm not taking anything away from him, but I'm watching him going, this guy might score five goals this year, and you can't have a third-line center scoring five goals. That's why I've always said from the outset, like I would just make the fourth line, the checking line. I think Spets is clearly capable of handling like 14 minutes a night. It's Jason Spetsa, And he looks unreal, by the way, like he can use some real so line mates. He literally, the, when I wrote my last report cards, he was leading the league in slot pass completions and they were going to Michael Amadio and Wayne Simmons. It's just, it feels like such a waste of the most high value pass in hockey. I want to get him some real line mates who can convert on those opportunities. The problem, though, is he is still kind of old. And, and given the skill set and all that stuff, can he really handle a bigger workload with more? Like, I mean, 
Yeah. Over we're 82 doing, is that they have to start load managing them. And you're thinking defensive responsibilities too. Yeah. And and in the end, if you give this guy 20, I'm, I'm just putting out a number, let's say 15 minutes a game consistently with better line mates. Now the expectation is higher. And if he's not performing the same way that he's performing now, because he's moved up the lineup with different competition, different responsibilities. Now we're talking about Jason Spezza moving down because he's just not performing very well. So maybe Spezza exactly where he's slotted is exactly where he should be slotted. Yeah. My, my concern with Spezza would be the holdup of like the full 82 game season and no team in the league has really shown any inclination to like properly load manage guys where they just say like, here's a set schedule and this is how much you're going to play. So we have three games and four nights coming up this weekend. You're not playing all three, you're but teams missing the don't middle really game. do that. That's yeah. what the Spurs have done with Tim Duncan for the last decade. I know he's retired now and he's going to be one of the 75 greatest players of all time, but he was a perfect example of later in his career. He was still a hall of fame talent but they wanted to save him for the playoffs. We're not going to waste him on a Tuesday night in February. Let's let's rest you here. We don't need you. In, in their defense, they have done that with Spezza. But not to the level that they do in the NBA. And the NBA's realized this as, as has, um, I think fans have started to realize this part, is the NHL playoffs is, like, it's basically a different game. Like, it's almost a different sport. Like, it's completely different. Rule book changes, uh, the back checking, the, the level of play, lot. the intensity teams are tracking back shift one. It's not like the final 10 let's, you know, Timothy Lilligren stops getting shifts, blah, blah, blah. It's like, that's from like puck drop. And so it makes for a different sport. And the NBA is possibly even more, you know, that's where they get where it's like, yeah, Kawhi, like you're playing the whole game. Like we're in the playoffs now, but so like NBA teams are like, who cares about the regular season? We'll make the playoffs and then we'll like NHL teams really need to start adapting that more. 82 games is if we're being honest, it's too long of a season. Like we don't need 82 games. I don't know. The NBA has talked about bringing it down to 70. The hard part is financially you have no incentive to do that if you're running a business. Right. So it's probably unlikely that happens. But I'm, I'm curious, Gus, what are some of your thoughts about the Leafs this season so far? We're only four games into the year. You don't want to take too much out of a small sample, but I always respect your opinion when it comes to watching the games on the ice, even though you tend to do it an hour or two later than you should. You have your games on PVR and you're tweeting about the first period when we're in the third period. But I am curious what your thoughts are this season on the team. Yeah, I was kind of thinking about that. And I think I might try to problem is PVR is just too, it's too easy to just let everything go and and no commercials and all that bullshit. So it's the best. I highly recommend people do it. I, what I'm going to stop doing though is actually tweeting out some stuff, unless it's like really relevant or or, or noteworthy. Um, I, I think that I'm pissing off. Hey, I still follow you for what so. it's worth. <laughs> so, I mean, you're doing something Thanks, right. <laughs> Honestly, okay. to all listeners, if you can go out for a night and then you come back and you PVR the game and you watch the whole thing in like an hour, fifteen minutes or whatever, it's great. In uh, theory, it could just be up. sixty minutes of continuous play if you're fast forward enough. Yeah, you end up screwing up faceoffs too, so it's probably the best. Yeah. Not if you're not if you're fake live tweeting like Gus. <laughs> All right, then it's like an hour and a half as he pauses, sends out a tweet that's like three hours late. <laughs> Let's press play again. <laughs> okay, so some very early season thoughts. Um, I'm not putting any credence as to what happened last uh, last playoffs. I think that that's over. We're moving ahead and just trying to figure out where this team stands moving forward. So the first thing, first, um, Austin Matthews not being in the lineup dramatically changes the Leafs up front. 
So you have to mix your lines. People start getting into different roles and different situations. And you need to be able to have a full complement in a very, I, I don't even want to say small sample size, but you need to at least see their full roster before you're able to say, this team can do this. So last game in particular, you see Matthews took over. He became the shot attempt leader, the shots leader. I'm a little concerned that they try to feed him a little too much at times. One of my biggest concerns, and I think that this is something that Ian might want to discuss, is the power play setup. Last year, my biggest concern with the power play was the fact that all they did was just try to find a seam and take a shot from the flanks. I just don't find that to be very productive. It's predictable. Teams can set themselves up for it. Given how good your shots are, you need to take a lot of them just to be successful. Now you're playing the percentages. And if you have enough power plays, you can do that. But when you start getting into the playoffs, similar to what Anthony was saying, each power play is precious. You need to be able to be not as predictable as they were last year and try to do something that is going to generate more scoring chances. So my first thought right off the bat, I'm okay with Marner being in the, uh, the bumper spot, but I think that I would prefer William Nealander being there, and I'll explain why. I think both okay. Marner and Matthews being really good as far as uh, feeding pucks into the middle. Now if you have Willie there, you have a natural shooter. A penalty killer is either going to gravitate towards Nylander and it opens up a scene on the flank, and then they can go back to their predictability model, or the, the penalty killer will try to gravitate towards the puck carrier and leaves Nylander open. I think his one-timer is better. You have a cleanup guy and John Tavares on the end, and you could have another winger collapsing on the side. I just don't think that that's capable with Marner then. Marner will always look for the play, and that's not a bad thing. It's just I don't think that it's as effective. So if the Leafs want to go with Marner in the middle, that's all fine and good. But are they going to just revert back to shooting shots from the flank? And when they're in a frustration mode, is that going to be the default? And if Marner is in the middle, I kind of seem to think that that's what's going to happen. Matthews is going to try to take the game into his own hands. And, you know, given his shot and the ability to do so, do you really want him just to be that predictable? You put people in front of him, what's it going to happen same kind of thing happens with Nealander. Again, a good shot, excellent shot from the flank. The predictability is the killer in the power play. And that's where I think the biggest issue is going into this season. I need to see a little bit of a change on the power play. So I want to, I want to get to the power play. I think we have, everyone has a few thoughts. They want to dig in on that. But I want to go back to the point about Matthews returning because you start to see, and I mean, everybody should inherently know this, but you start to see the domino effect of Matthews returning, right? Because now... Mike Amadio is not in the top 12 and Pierre Engvall is on the fourth line. And then you start looking at the fourth line and you go, that's their fourth line. But it, provided he's not, you know, bad Pierre Engvall, which you never know what you're going to get. But if he's if he's on his game, he's not a fourth liner. The way Jess, Jason Spets is playing, at least so far this season, he's not a fourth liner. And then, you know, it starts to trickle down. And then if you eventually add in, you know, hopefully an Ilya Mikheyev, and probably my biggest lament of the team last season, we just never got to see that full proper starting 12, like healthy because Felino just went to shit on his back. And then Tavares obviously got injured, but you start to see like, okay, if they have all 12, there's a lot of guys that are playing lower in the lineup than they would on other teams. And that's what's going to make them at the end of the day. So good is partly just a staying healthy and then be like the overall depth. And I think to that point, Ian, of your question of like, what do you think through four games? I felt this in the off season, 
and I feel it now. I think they had a good offseason short of making a major move. Bunting is a good, he's a good depth pickup. As long as Cash is healthy, he's a good hockey player. I don't know and, if he's healthy. He blocked a shot the other day. I know. His practice. I, he, I really worry about him. And basically, anytime somebody touches his body, I hold my breath and I count to three. Yeah. But if he's playing, like, obviously, I mean, he's noticeable. Now, would I configure the lineup the way that they currently have it configured? Absolutely not. But I think the point is, is he did a good job of supplementing the core with the cap space that he had without actually moving anybody. I think he had about as good of an off season as you could possibly have given that scenario. I think Mrazek's really good. And he was kind of my pick for guy that'll be worth more than his money. And I felt bad for him because I actually thought he played amazing <laughs> in those two periods. And the first two goals don't even go in off sticks. It just, he got hockeyed and it is what it is. But I think it's early. I don't want to like go nuts on four games or anything, but I still feel now as I did in the off season, I think Dubas for what he had as options had a good off season. Still not crazy about the Nick Ritchie signing. And I know it's early and we're going to see if he yeah. can fit in with top six talent, but to me, it looks like he's behind the play almost all the time. And that's very concerning long-term, but Gus, I do want to get back to some of the things you were saying about the power play, because when I go back and I, rewind and I rewatch certain things because I'm a psychopath. The power play is the thing that I'm rewatching and I'm constantly tracking Mitch Marner to see where is he going? Where does he think the open ice is? Where does he think he needs to be standing? And the way that they're running the power play right now, it's the same formation that every team in the league uses. I know Anthony has a criticism with this and frankly, I think he's right. I think there's too much of a cookie cutter approach to how NHL teams are running their power plays. You have the one man in front of the net, Two people on the flanks, one person on the bumper, and one person manning the point. If you think of the origins to this, what what essentially happened like 10 years ago is teams started running this one, two teams in particular started running this one three one with probably two of like the top five greatest one-timers of all time. Tampa was Stamkos and St. Louis on the other side, which was disgusting, obviously, and Dan Boyle, I would want to say almost. I could be wrong on that timeline, but give or take. And then Washington, of course, with Mike Green and Alex Ovechkin. And basically every team watched this and they were like, oh, this is amazing. But not like nobody has Ovechkin and Stamkos other than the two teams with Ovechkin and Stamkos. And it wasn't like every other power play formation was shit and couldn't score. It was like everybody watched their success and wanted to mimic it without even having the tools at their disposal to mimic it. This is where I want to bring up Mitch Marner's skill set because it's a unique one. He's, if not the best passer in the world, one of the best passers in the world, one of the most creative passers in the world, and he can't shoot from distance. We all know it. Goaltenders know it. Defenses know it. When he's 30, 40 feet away, they're daring him to shoot. If you watch a lot of basketball, it'll remind you of a Ben Simmons or a Russell Westbrook, a player who is undeniably attacking downhill a dangerous player and a fantastic playmaker, but from distance, you can leave them alone because you're not afraid of their shot. So when you have a player like that, where do you put them in this one, three, one configuration? The Leafs have decided let's try him in the bumper and he'll roll up high if they're giving him that space. And then he can skate downhill like Mitch Marner when he's at his best. I've liked those opportunities. Other times he's kind of sagged down into the goal line and it becomes an umbrella formation with Marner at the left net front and Tavares at the right net front. And I think that's been my favorite configuration of it so far. 
Isn't it fundamentally insane that they're just sitting there and saying, here are the five positions on the power play and they don't, they, it's not up for changing and you have to slot into one of them and it's not going to be the very top because that's where a defenseman's going to be. I think that's a place to try and him, honestly. Potentially, sure. And you could have that discussion, but the the basic conversation of there are five spots on the power play and it's a one, three, one, and it's not up for negotiation is insane. So the thing about the one three one is it really does optimize the triangulation teams are trying to figure out yeah. the offense. So yeah. that's really why it's such a favorable formation. But but, but not every team can do it. And at the same time, too, it's not like every team has capable one-timers from the flanks. And it's not like that they can kind of rotate. I actually like the idea of the umbrella, and it's something that I they do. used to use when Kadri was the do you remember? I know Gus will. I don't think Ian will. The Thanks. old, it's just true, but you can tell me if you do. You'll remember, Gus, the old Paul Maurice sleeves. Cabriolet up top, McCabe on the right, Sundin on the left, Kyle Wellwood down low with Darcy Tucker. And like, you're telling me that Mitch Marner couldn't do what Kyle Wellwood used to do. And Kyle Wellwood was unbelievable on the power play down there. Mats would basically wind up and he'd be like, like you think if you think about it, you think if Matthews walks in with speed that he needs a screen goalie to score from inside the top of the circle. No, he doesn't need a net front guy. Like he doesn't need a wasted guy standing in front. Like, Oh, thank God. Like so-and-so is screening the goalie because Matthews never would have scored. Otherwise, like, give me a break. Like you give Matthews speed skating down the wall and, and gets to wind up and shoot. How many is he scoring out of 10? Seven? So you brought up Kyle Wellwood, who played, he was a right-hand shot, played to the left of the goalie on the goal line, right? So that made so him a very good So if you're facing the goalie, line. he was on the left. So yeah, Matt okay. would basically like stand there and wind up and it'd be, okay, I'm either going to murder this puck. And if the defenseman didn't step up on him, he would. Or if the defenseman stepped up on him, he would slide it down low to Wellwood, who would go cross crease to Darcy Tucker and it would most likely be a goal like Martin's we're talking about Kyle is- Wellwood and Darcy Tucker God bless both their hearts but they are not Mitch Marner and John Tavares and that's a very fair point and this is where Marner's passing is what you want to leverage on this power play it's his superpower he doesn't have the shot he doesn't have the insane tipping ability of some of the guys in front but when the puck's on his stick and there's a cross seam pass to be made or there's a backdoor pass or he gets yeah. it and it's a quick one touch pass to an open player he has the vision, the creativity to accomplish that. So where do you want him on the ice? Bumper is one spot where he can be sending some one-touch passes. He's not a shooter, though. Defense. Like, do you and know the play? the toughest part. Do you know the play against the Rangers? Uh, he was on power play, and he got the puck in the slot, and you could actively tell that he didn't want to shoot it. Right? He and he, like, looked it around, it and, it got, and it got deflected out, but he held it for, like, three seconds. And, like, that that was the thing. It was, it was he didn't want to shoot. And he'll, he's never going to want to shoot. Like people are talking about Braden Point. Braden Point is a legitimate goal scorer. Like he was like, oh, shooter. I watched Braden Point in the slot in the bumper roll on Tampa's power play. I'm like, yeah, because Braden Point actually is a goal scorer. Like Mitch Marner is a great player, but he's not a goal scorer. I think he's going to find that he has the most success when he rolls up top to the blue line and skates downhill because that's where he has more room to attack and drive and force someone to come at him and make a pass. Or like you said, in that Wellwood spot along the goal line, this is a stats thing. This is a nerdy analytics thing, but passes that originate from below the goal line and then lead to a shot right away. 
it drastically boosts your shooting percentage. So if you can get Mitch Marner to thread some passes from the goal line out front to a Tavares, to a Matthews, to a Nylander, I think those are really high percentage shooting shooting options, and I'd like to see more of them. So I think what you guys are both talking about are trying to figure out a way to create a shooting lane. And whether you're in that one, three, one, there are methods that you can use to generate a shooting lane. And then you take advantage of the shooting. Um, A well-lit example was interesting because for me, I think one of the most effective power plays was Jason Allison on the bottom corner. Jason Allison. But the reason for that is though, when Allison got the puck, he was stationary. So he drew people to him. As he drew people to him, it opened up a lane. I don't think Marner is opening up. I don't think his skill set is optimized for opening up a shooting lane. That's why he's struggling on the power play. He needs to hold on to it. He needs to be, and and I get the creativity. I'm not saying that he shouldn't change his game. That's not what I'm saying. But there's a, a structure to the power play that is less about creativity and more about trying to do something to force your opponent to open up somewhere. So going back to what I was saying about Nylander, that's why I think Marner is best on the wing because he does attract that, that, oh my God, Marner has the puck. He's going to do things. So I need to, so you open up that lane right in the middle. So if you want power play effectiveness and in the end, it should be dynamic and structurally sound enough so that if one person moves from that one slot, they all move and it should be seamless. And if Morgan Riley is all of a sudden playing at the front of the net because everybody shifted, then that's fine. Everybody knows their roles. Everybody understands their responsibilities, but there are risks associated to that. So teams are structured in that one, three, one. They don't take any risks because they don't want to make sure, you know, especially with four forwards and one defenseman. And we could talk about defense and all that until the cows come home, but that, increased risk puts coaches on the hot seat and they just don't want to do that so they're just going to keep trotting out the same thing and that's why we league of cowards this is the analytics versus coaching taking risks if across all sports if you look at what analytics try to encourage it's taking more risks to score more goals even though you'll give up more goals against the differential will be in your favor simple statistics tell you is it statistically likely that every team runs the same fucking power play (laughs) <laughs> and that's the smart thing for every. I don't know team if that's a stats thing. I think that's just uh, like it, the way it is. But right in now. the but in the end, that's exactly what the stats are telling them. If you do this enough times, you're going to have success X amount of times. They did the same for half a season, thinking that the percentages would be in their favor. So there are times where you can work the numbers, and then there's times where I think that they work against you. They absolutely worked against Toronto last year, and I just hope that they learned some lessons from that that they can apply to this year. So the interesting, you said an interesting thing I want to get back to, because I think this kind of speaks to some of the development of the game itself and the strategy behind it. You mentioned the one, three, one in terms of triangles, right? It's all triangles, which teams are trying to create. And the bumper, that's really the whole, it's like a release valve almost. It's okay. There's too much pressure on the half wall. Let's bump it to the middle. Let's kind of reset the penalty kill. And then get it back together. And that's really where the game has evolved. Whereas when I think of something like the umbrella as an example, or even teams that used to just overload the power play and essentially have a triangle on half the ice. And this was really like when I was growing up as a kid, what power plays were about was creating two on ones. And when you look at it at like Kyle Wellwood and Darcy Tucker, as an example, you're like, it's a down low two on one. 
teams would have to shift from playing a box, which was like the traditional PK way to a diamond. And if you had a good enough shooter, in that case, Matt Sundin, that could pull the diamond on the on the flank towards you. It's essentially a down low two on one between Marner, Tucker and whoever the poor defenseman is in the slot. Right. Wellwood and, instead of Marner there. Or sorry. Yeah. Wellwood, the defenseman and Tucker. <laughs> but I was. Yeah, my bad. Uh, we probably. We probably won't edit that out, but we should. And really, my point is, I think teams, some teams need to just look at their group and say, like, we're not good enough to be running these triangles. And we don't have the shooters to be running these triangles. Try to play like the Yankees out there. We'll lose to the Yankees. And the crazy thing is, is the Leafs actually like I Matthew's obviously one of the best shooters in the league. And you can't convince me that Nylander doesn't have a bomb. So it's not like the Leafs lack in shooters, but they're not, they're not power play shooters. Like they're not one timers. Like you don't sit there and say, I'm going to put it in Matthew's wheelhouse. I do wonder if Nylander is a good enough shooter to warrant all the one timers he's taking from that spot. He's not a Stamkos. He's not a Pasternak. He's not a, a guy who it's an automatic. If it's on his stick off a crossing pass, it's in the back of the net. He's a good shooter. Yeah. He's not a bad shooter. I'm not saying that, but I'm wondering with this formation, you brought it up, Gus, about is Nylander in the middle, maybe the better spot for him. And the, the thing I'd get concerned about there is not having enough shot threats on the flanks. Cause I do like the idea of a power play that has a shot threat from the left flank and a shot threat from the right flank. Colorado's power play comes to mind with McKinnon and Ranton and Tampa is the classic example with Kucherov and Stamkos. And then you have Braden point, the bumper headman at the, at the top. It's not fair. It's too much talent. So this is kind of how I see it. We're talking about the one three one, but go back and watch some video of the Caps. Two particular seasons of uh, one where where Mike Green scored thirty goals. Hmm. So they might have started as the one three one. That was the I'm going to call that the reset formation. But the puck went down low. The bumper went to the puck. They played more of an overload than they did a one-three-one. So now everybody's kind of looking into the corner. The puck comes up to the defenseman. It goes over to Ovi one time in the net. It was the same kind of thing with Mike Green. Everybody would overload to one side, even though they set their reset as the one-three-one. They pushed the puck to a corner. When that puck was in that corner, Green would step into the soft side of the ice, and then the puck would get to him. He scored thirty goals from the same damn play. We always kind of think, why does Ovechkin get all that time? And, and everybody knows what he's going to do. It's because the setup forces teams to do that, turn their backs. The point that you made in about a puck coming from behind the goal line, increasing the shooting percentage, that's what I mean by using the numbers to try to formulate the strategy. I love that. I also think that the Leafs are too rigid in that one three one. They could do a lot more fluided and, and, and move that guy from the front of the net to the side and then do a little bit of an overload. There are lots of options that I think that they could try to implement. I just think that we're kind of stuck in that one formation, and that's why I keep harping on predictability. Just taking shots from the flanks, that's just not good enough, no matter how good your shooters are. So while I do have the same kind of concern about Nylander in the middle, um, I think that the cleanup spot is the net front guy, which should be Tavares. And either he's doing some stuff where Nylander also kind of goes hard to the front of the net. And we all saw Nylander breaking out when he was going to the front of the net. And now all of a sudden we can kind of change the way that our power play goes. 
I, I like your point on the rigidity of power play formations, because if you get too stuck doing the exact same thing, you become easy to defend, easy to exactly. game plan against. And I think one of the biggest benefits of Mitch Marner is that you don't really know what he's going to do next. As a mm-hmm. player, when he's rolling around in the offensive zone, you don't really know what the next move is. You might shake and bake you to the right, to the left. You might deliver a spin pass. He might keep wheeling around the zone. So I think if you're the Leafs, instead of trying to get Marner to have set plays where he goes to very specific spots on the ice, I think you need to read and react to what the defense is doing. And if the defense is backing off on him, he has a few options. He can roll up high and then create a, basically it's like a high three on two down low and try to make some kind of play from there. If the defense is staying up on him, which I don't think is going to happen very often, he can always creep into that space that's going to be available in the left corner or he can support the play along the wall a bit better. I think he needs to do a bit more switching with players, whether it's on the wall, on the goal line, at the point. I love Marner at the blue line at five on five play when he comes up high. I think that's his most dangerous spot on the ice because he has the entire ice to navigate with his passing ability. So I, I like it when there's more switching, more movement, more unpredictability. Anthony, what are your thoughts? I think, I, yeah, like, uh, of course, I agree with all those things. Like, there should be a little bit more movement and, and all that. But I think all of these things are secondary things to establishing what is a Leafs power play goal? Like, uh, like, no questions asked. Like, what is the one thing they're trying to do to score? Get the and puck I don't know Matthews and put the puck in the back of the but, net. But, but how? Like, is it, is it Matthews comes up to the blue line and then catches the puck going downhill? And Tavares is screening and he rips one. And, and is that the goal? And sometimes we see it and it's like, this is incredible. And then there's other power plays where they don't do it at all. And to me, when you talk about the Ovechkin and then adding Mike Green in, like they basically, they're, they were one of the early adopters of the one, three, one, but it was out of necessity because teams were overloading it too much and they needed that middle valve, right? It was like, whether it was Joel Ward or Troy Brower or TJ Oshie, like they needed a guy there to make teams pay for for cheating on them. But the only way that they could make that successful is because they made teams pay over and over and over again with the exact same goal. And I think when we talk about these other concepts, the Leafs need to do the first part of just establishing, here's a goal that we're going to score like a million times until you can stop it. And then when teams start to stop it is when you start building in these additional layers. This is why the drop pass pisses me off because the drop pass works. I know people get mad. It works. They don't have a counter move. If teams play like there was one against Ottawa where Riley was at center and Ottawa had their first four checker was chilling on the Leafs blue line, waiting for it. And Riley passed it anyway. And they went offside. I was like, why didn't you just skate it? But you need to establish that first wave of like, this is a Leafs power play goal. And if you don't take it away from us, we are going to embarrass you time and again. Matthews will shamelessly score a million like this unless you start doing something. And then you add in, let's add the extra motion. Then you add in a counter punch, but you need that first one. So they did have that. They had that in the yes. pass goals. You remember the pass goals? Yeah. Hunter would attract people. He just throw it to the crease. All Patrick Miller had to do was just put your stick down. I'll find you. That was a typical goal. He went download to JVR all the time. All the time. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. They don't do exactly. it very often anymore. And they have one of the best players in the world at the net front and John Tavares. I think they need to do it a bit more often. We talk about two on ones. What did Marner used to do? He's basically just stand there on the wall and be like, I'm either going to pass it down low to JVR or I'm going to pass it to the bumper for a shot tip. 
that's it. Like you pick one of the two, whichever one you think is you're going to stop, you pick it. I'll do the other one. And I don't, that's, that's the two on one concept, right? Where it's just like, all right, you pick one, I'll pick the other. I don't give a shit, but I don't know what the Leafs are doing. Do you? Matthews can score from anywhere. In the, yes. in the offensive zone. So if the puck's on his stick, I think I know, that's but you want it to be fun. repeatable. Like it's bullshit to just say, like, get him. Like, this isn't like kicking and screaming and like pass it to the Italians. It's like you need an actual play. Like you need a repeatable. Like I, I get what you're saying, but like they need to make it a repeatable action where it's like if you let this happen, like we're going to like you either get lucky or we score. If you go cross seam to him from Nylander to Matthews, I think that would be the ideal option. But I'd imagine yeah. defenses try to take that away. So yeah. what's the next play? Can we go down low to Tavares? Is, is a pass yeah. from Riley to Matthews for a one-timer? Is that a high enough percentage play for it to be your bread and butter? If Nylander gets the puck with speed coming off the wall and he winds up to shoot and teams have to pick either we're going to let Nylander shoot full out or we're going to let him pass it across to Matthews or we're going to let him pass it down low to Tavares. Do you trust Nylander to make the right decision from there? Because I do. I do too. What I don't see is the Leafs building in that concept where like, that's how black and white it should be. It should be very simple. Like a guy gets the puck and he's just like, all right, they're giving it to me. I'm taking it or they're not giving it to me. Here are my options. And that, that was all Marner did. Like, it wasn't that hard. He was just like, I'm either passing it to JVR or I'm passing it to Naz. He just read it. Like, that's it. It was was so simple and it was the most effective power play in terms of expected goals in history. Since we started tracking this in 2007, 2008, these are facts. These are, you look at where the shots were coming from when those guys were on the ice, they were all high quality. We make this game too complicated. It's a simple game. Just make it simple options, which I think is what Gus was getting at there. I just think that they need to be less predictable. So I don't want to say recreate the wheel because I think that that's, we're beyond that at this point. They have star power out there, lots of firepower, lots of creativity. Use that in a better way than just winding up to take a shot from the flanks just because you have two capable shooters. Nylander can shoot from one end. Matthews can absolutely shoot it from anywhere. And that's all fine and good. But I need more... um, it needs to be that repeatable success where it's something, like this yes. is right. Something, like, something else other than being just too predictable. Predictability yeah. is death. Predictability. Can you give me an example of what you're referring to in terms of like a play that you want them to run? So as an example, um, the one thing that the Leafs never really did last year was use the net front when they move off of when the puck comes up high, the net front actually goes to one flank over the other. Use that flank, get the puck down low again. This is where the analytics come into play. You get the puck down low, everybody turns. Now you got a pass coming out from below the goal line. It's either going to the bumper that's going to be coming in. That's what Nazem Kadri used to do. Or you move it out to the point and everybody collapses hard. You take the shot and then there's a scramble. It's crazy. So that's just as an example. I'm not saying that that's what I want them to do. But I just need to see something a little bit more than just easy shots from the sides. And that's a fair point because I think sometimes you can get caught up running your power play exclusively from the perimeter. And I know that's the way it's designed. The penalty killers are on the inside. The skill players are on the outside and you're trying to penetrate. But if they're not giving you anything through the middle there, you do want to scare them with your shooters from the outside so that they're forced to come out a little bit further. And that's when you kill them with the backdoor pass. So it's hard. You want to create those threats. You want to create those scary options from the dots that drag penalty killers out and then you take advantage of them. But if you're not scaring them with those initial shots, if penalty killers are getting in the way of the Austin Matthews one timer, they have a man, they're ready to block it. 
similar to how players have, have treated Ovechkin. They just sometimes they know they can't get over to take away the pass. So they have a defenseman there, one knee down on the ice, just wincing in pain in advance because he knows it's coming. I can see teams doing that with Austin Matthews and then saying, we'll, we'll take our chances with Nylander. If Nylander is going to beat us from the top of the left circle, what can we do? We overloaded to Austin Matthews. You just need to, again, get that goal from Matthews. Like once he starts putting up like 15 of them at teams, <laughs> right? Like Gus remembers like teams used to literally just have a guy stand beside Ovechkin. Like he could tell you what he had for dinner that night. Yeah. And that's that again, part of their one, three, one, they're going, okay, shit. Ovechkin, you go stand by the boards. We had Bruce on. He would tell Ovechkin to either go stand by the boards or just go to the net. And then Baxter runs a four on three and just jigsaws it. Right. But like you need to create that bread and butter. I just haven't seen that sort of, you need a bread and butter goal. You need like, okay. Signature Toronto. Yeah. There is no signature goal right now. That, that's my biggest. Once you develop that, then you add in the additional layers, but there needs to be that bread and butter. So that, you know, helps your expected goals, which I think is a good transition because we could talk power play strategy Forever. for hours. I know Ian is loving it. If the listeners want more of this, please feel free to let us know. You can go for another hour, I Ian, think. This is great. Ian gives me shit on X's nose every week as if I don't know what they are. So, uh, but one thing we want to talk about on that expected goals note is the least expected goals so far is fantastic. But of course, we live in the real world and their actual goals for has not met that yet there's two lines of thinking on this one the obvious is they're going to start scoring like they're too good nobody's stupid here nobody's going to like suggest that this team's not going to score we know they're going to score they're going to be fine they're going to be a good regular season team all of that stuff i have no doubt but the second one is where i think we still get into the demons because we saw a good clip of it in the amazon prime series it was probably like a month into the season and Keith goes, are we going to be scoring goals in the playoffs? And I could take any point that says the law of averages will even out. The Leafs will be a good offensive team in the regular season. I know that will hit, but I think anyone is kidding themselves if they don't think that Keith and co are already having these conversations. Like this is what happens in the playoffs where we look good and or like we create a lot of chances, but we don't score. And then what happens? And I still think that's a very, very real concern. And I'll pass that on to you guys for your thoughts. So I heard Bruce Boudreaux say this on the radio the other day, since we're just casually bringing up the fact that we all know Bruce Boudreaux. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. You guys. <laughs> so we're best you say, yeah. <laughs> when your kid is going through a scoring slump and your dad, what's the first thing you ask him? Are you generating chances? Are you getting chances? And if you're getting chances, the goals will come. They will eventually. I know it's frustrating. And if you're shooting 0% through over two weeks and you have a bunch of scoring chances, if I'm that person with zero goals, I'm pissed off. I don't really, I don't think anybody's questioning whether they're going to get it back on track this season. And if they are, they're a tool, like they're going to be fine. Like they're going to, they're going to score. Like I said, it's what happens when this happens in the playoffs, because we've seen it sent. They've gone dry in the most critical of times. It's not like we're watching them lose the big games because they score five and give up six. Every single time it's been because they straight up can't score. Yep. I know Marner recently talked about his struggles and said that he wants to get more second chance opportunities. And I thought that was a good way of kind of taking the discussion to a next point because we could 
talk about expected goals versus actual goals. And, oh, I don't care about your expected goals. I care about the production you're paid for. You're an $11 million winger. Show up in, in key moments. I, I get that frustration. But like you said, what they talked about in the Amazon series of getting to the net after the initial shot and getting a second chance opportunity, I think is something that the Leafs really want to work on because we, we expect them off of turnovers, Nylander, Marner and company can take the puck the other way and create something dangerous off the rush. We know they can do that. I'd like to think they get this power play sorted out so that it's top five in the league again. But what we're really talking about is it's a one, one hockey game, or let's say they're down by a goal late in game six or game seven of a closeout playoff game. Do you expect them to generate quality chances with consistency? I don't think Anthony does. And I'm, I'm not even talking late in the game. I'm talking the entirety of the game. I'm talking from puck drop onward in a big (coughs) game, essentially. Like, do I expect them to score? I don't care if they create chances. Do I expect them to score? That's, that's where I'm at. And it's not, I'm actually um, torn here because I think that expected goals are important. And the reason for that is once you start getting into the nitty gritty of where shots are coming from and the expected goals from those spots, um, you know where your danger areas are. And you don't always have to score from in front of the net. But the biggest concern I had going back to the playoffs was the Leafs decided after game three that they weren't going to play the Leafs kind of game. They were happy in the perimeters. They weren't going into, into those high, highly effective expected goal areas because that's kind of what we're talking about here, an area on the ice. Uh, and they were kind of... Yeah, they were content to just operate in that perimeter. And you're thinking, okay, they're just going to find a spot and then they're going to just capitalize. You know, the reason why you have a talented team isn't because you're going to win 6-5 every game. You're going to win 2-1 every game. But you're going to generate chances on your first line. You're going to generate chances from your second line. You're going to play those percentages throughout the entire game. And you're going to win 2-1, 3-1 with an empty netter. That's the goal. That's the way that I think... You try to build balance throughout your club. It's not exciting, but that's how you have to do it. So when the Leafs decided that in game four, that we're just going to be a bit more of a perimeter team, we'll let Montreal make mistakes and we'll capitalize. That is a coaching issue. It's not a player's issue. So I think that there's a a responsibility from coaching staff to reiterate the importance of getting to the highly effective expected goals areas. And then it is a, absolute responsibility for the team to understand they cannot operate specifically only on their skill. They need to be able to produce other things. And it's nice to know, or it's nice to think that Matthews can snipe one from anywhere and yeah, you're good, but that's just not reality. And in the regular season, when you're playing a different team and you're traveling and doing different things, that's fine. But when you're in a playoff series and you have dedicated video, dedicated people looking to see how they can kind of break the other team's system, you're going to get it hard every single time. Yeah, and I think I think we can talk about, you know, like coaching strategy, all that stuff until we're blue in the face. But, you know, at the end of the day, the players are going to have to show with, you know, when the chips are on the table that they can kind of break through and that, that Paul McClain... Um, ghosts under their bed or demons under their beds demons under their cars demons in their fucking heads quote is going to stick until they can prove otherwise but i will say because i i do want to be positive because i thought they did fight through like obviously they didn't get the win against the rangers but i thought they kept pressing and, and did a good job 
And there was actually one play, and it was kind of nondescript, whatever, but I, it was probably my favorite play of the season so far, is Nylander breaks in on like a partial breakaway. And he puts it, he sticks out his leg and he drops his shoulder and he drives to the net because he's trying to make a move. Now, Condre Miller got his stick. And it's fine. It was a legal play. Condre Miller made a great play. He's also like 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, long wingspan, good skater. Long wingspan, huge player. He made a great play. Kudos to him. But in past years, we would have seen Nylander float some sort of backhand or garbage to the net. And the fact that he actually actively tried to take it to the net and fight through a check is super, super promising of where we want to see them go as a team, right? It's like, I know that I can get there and it might be problematic, but I need to do it the right way. And that's the right way to play that kind of situation where it's like, I can't settle for some shitty little shot. I need to take it to the net hard. And even though it didn't work out for him that time, keep doing that over and over again. And that's the kind of stuff that's going to get you ready for that tighter playoff checking type of hockey. Like that's more of the stuff that I want to see from them. I mean, the one goal they scored in the game, albeit bunting wasn't on the team last year. That's the kind of goal that people have been talking about, right? Just drives the net. It was a shitty goal. I mean, hey, they're hoping cares. Nick Ritchie can do some of that. Yeah. And I think Richie is an interesting one. One, I think it's going to take him like 15, 20 games just to get his legs under him. Oh, my God. First and foremost. Oh, it's like, too long for me. Come on. Like, it's a pro it, is, it is. It is way too long. But I think it's going to take him some time to get his legs under him. The other thing, too, is and I know I was saying this to you last week, Ian. Look, Richie doesn't look good. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that one out. But when you're playing with two guys making $22 million, I'm sorry. Like you can say, throw the money out the window, but like you can't, like when you're playing with, with two guys that make that much money, I don't even think you need to bring you, up, the you don't money. have you to do just anything. Bring up the caliber of the talent. Yeah. Really. You, you yeah. shouldn't have to do anything. Like we should just sit there and be like, yeah, Richie did a good job. He went to the net and like, he didn't do shit, but like, <laughs> supposed to like, land on his stick. You know, it's not it's his not, job to make those passes. It's not like 16 and 91 have been hopping the boards and it's electric right now. Can I bring up a point that you made about dropping your shoulder and getting to the inside? Because I think it's a really good point. Yeah. You get rewarded for those on the stat sheet. If you drop your shoulder, get to the inside and generate yeah. shots from the slot, your expected goals, your scoring chance numbers will be very high. It's part of the reason when I was watching Andre Kasha in the preseason, you know he's a skilled player, but when he drops his shoulder to try to get inside position and generate shots from closer than that. He plays the right way. Yeah, and that's why he's been one of the top goals per 60 guys his entire career. He can't stay healthy for the life of him, but when he is healthy, he's very productive. Can I bring up a, a quick thing on the definition for expected goals? Just for anyone who's not 100% familiar on where the concept comes from, this is from Dominic Gallimini's Twitter uh, profile, which, by the way, he just got hired today Congrats. by the Buffalo Sabres. Yeah, nice. Big ups to Dom. and his, He's six foot six. Former, when I first met former him, MLHS writer. Congrats. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that. I did not know he was part of the MLHS family. We're ancient, to... man. We've been around forever. You were part of the PPP podcast. We've uh, <sighs> we've I'm had some times. I remember his hero charts. I remember own the puck. Yeah. Blogspot. I remember all that stuff. I didn't know he's Mimico MLHS, hero. Mimico yeah, hero. huge fan of his work. So here's his pinned tweet on his Twitter before it goes dark, which is going to happen soon. I like, th I like thinking of expected goals in this way. Watch a play and then freeze frame at the exact moment that a puck is released. An expected goal value should closely reflect an experienced hockey mind's intuitive sense of shot danger in that instance. What that basically means is 
right before Nylander takes that shot on the power play, right before, yeah. let's say, Andre Cash is in the inside and he's letting the shot go. What's the chance of that shot beating an NHL goal on average? And if you add those totals up throughout the course of a season, you get a pretty good indicator of which teams are generating good chances, which teams are generating poor chances. I personally prefer using just scoring chances, shots from the slot, because I think that's more intuitive for a reader or a hockey player or a hockey coach, even though I know statistically expected goals are the better way to predict future results. I like trying to make my work understandable to the average hockey fan. So I just go with scoring chances, passes through the slot. These are all things we want. And if we count them, we add them up, we can see which players are providing value and which guys aren't providing value. And this is why when a guy like Mitch Marner is on the ice for a lot of scoring chances for, and I think he only has one point this, this far in the season, mm-hmm. I'm personally not that worried. I care way more about scoring chances than I do about points and small samples. So that's where my analysis comes into play. Curious what your guys' opinion is. So I like that. I, I think that that's a great definition. There's a lot to, un- to unravel there too. There are times where you're going to give up the shot because somebody else is in a better position, even though the value for that expected goals where that person is, um, is less. And that's fine. So I like the idea. And again, we're kind of talking about using percentages here. The more you do the good things, get to those hard areas where the value for expected goals is greater, you're going to find greater success. Even with Mitch Marner's crappy start to the season. I totally agree. He's doing the Mitch Marner things. The goals and the results will eventually come. I think from the expectation of explaining that to other people, that's a great explanation. Explaining that to a coach is non is a non-starter because the coach is going to say, well, we need to get in the zone. We need to do blah, 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 uh, all these things. All those things have nothing to do with expected goals. But in the end, we're both talking about the exact same things. Get to those high danger areas, those effective scoring chance areas. And I'm kind of with you, Ian. I like expected goals and I really dig it. But I like scoring chances, especially high danger scoring chances. And you don't have to always be in front of the net, but you have to formulate plays. And that triangulation that we were talking about in the power play, it also is there on five on five. And In the end, you're measuring the results that you're doing by doing good things on the ice. And when you do get to those high danger areas or you do get to those really high valued expected goal areas, maybe we can kind of use that as a a bit of a definition there. You know that success is going to come. Over the long run, you're going to have a lot of success. In the short term, though, that doesn't really apply. Because now you have different teams that defend better. You have a different goaltender. You have, and when it comes to the playoffs, you're going to have players that are, you know, we know these are high danger areas. We're going to be a lot more cognizant about being there and taking that part of the ice away. So there's a lot of other factors, I think, that go above and beyond a great definition that you provided for us. Um, the, at the, on the other end, defensively, I think that they need to be, just as cognizant as they were last year, because that's exactly what I think made them better defensively last year. They were much more cognizant of where they were in the defensive zone, where those high danger areas really were, and tried to ensure that there was a player there or in that vicinity to take those shots away. So I can While we're see... talking about value, can I bring up a quick point? So Absolutely. the pass through, pass through the middle of the ice increases your chances of scoring, increases your expected goals, basically triples it if you're able to complete a pass through the seam. And that's something that we don't have publicly right now. 
if you see a shot of moneypuck.com or natural stat trick or any of the place of evolving hockey that have expected goal models, they don't take the passing into account. Whereas a company like sport logic or Instat or whatever teams are using, it will take that into account. So TJ Brody, someone last year, who I thought was a perfect example of how we can measure defense in the modern game. He's so good at taking away those passes through the middle of the ice, whether it's his stick laying down his body, perfectly timing it on a two on one. He takes away that high value pass through the middle of the ice. And I agree with you. I think that's the way that you sustainably have a good defense is by preventing those high value opportunities. Is that more of a structure team level thing? Or is that the Jims and the Joes and just simply having better defensive players like a TJ Brody, like a Jake Muzzin? That's allowing the Leafs to be better defensively. I think that that's a combination of both, right? It's one thing to add TJ Brody because it gave Morgan Riley something else above and beyond because Riley's always had to be his own man, his own island. Um, But I think that is a team-level concept that filters down to the individual players to make sure. Like my biggest, I'll call it my my own real hashtag is is structure not systems. So you can implement your systems, but the players need to be structurally responsible. So if one player moves out of that structure, which happens a lot because of puck movement, the other players need to be able to adjust. That adjustment is essentially based around the expected goals. So you find those danger areas, you make sure that you have everything covered. And if anything happens to slip through, you hope that you have a phenomenal goaltender in there to be able to kind of save your ass every once in a while. So I love that point. Um, and that pre-shot movement and all of that, that's gold because that's what you want. That, in fact, is the reason why I think that the Leafs should have used Nealander on the power play last year so that they're able to get that cross-seam pass, take advantage of that. That I mean, statistically, it's much, great, it's much better, but I think that you're catching goalies offhand. You're forcing everybody to shift. So there wasn't just enough of that on the power play. And I'd even say at five-on-five, there wasn't enough specifically in the playoffs, you need to do things that generate scoring chances. You need to do things where you get yourself to good, solid places on the ice and you'll absolutely have long-term success. And we talk about getting to the high danger area as if the only way to do it is to barrel your way to the crease, kind of like Evgeny Malcolm would in his prime when he sees red mist and he just drops the shoulder and says, I'm going to bulldoze my way through three people and get a scoring chance. Yeah, it's usually not the way to do it because you're usually going to turn the puck over if you try to do that. Sometimes you do need to use the perimeter to draw out defenders and then thread that pass through the middle of the S. I think of Morgan Riley activating into the offensive zone, activating down the left wall, down the right wall, a forward or a defenseman has to chase him there and it opens up the passing lane. And all of a sudden the puck is on a stick of a Michael Bunting or Nick Ritchie or Andre Kasha or whoever goes to the net. That's how you get those high danger opportunities. It's hard to do it all by yourself. I think you do need to use your teammates and and see that as an avenue for passing. And I know we talk about the Leafs as being this perimeter oriented team. And frankly, I think anytime you have the puck, it's going to be on the perimeter. I think that's just the nature of hockey in general teams collapse towards the slot, the space for a puck carriers along the perimeter, Tampa Bay owned the puck along the perimeter. They used the boards more than they used the open ice half the time in the offensive zone. So you can still generate, shots from the middle of the ice by using the perimeter. You just need to be smart about it. You still need to thread those passes through the teeth of the defense. And when you're not attempting those passes, you're not pulling them off. That's when you're in trouble. And that's when you become a quote unquote perimeter team. But I do think you can generate interior shots from the perimeter. Can I just make one comment about Richie? I feel the Leafs tried 
to duplicate Zach Hyman between Bunting and Richie. So they felt that they probably had some scoring talent, lots of physicality, lots of, you know, gumption to go and get loose pucks. Bunting kind of fits that. I don't really think that that's a proper definition. I think he's more offensively skilled than uh, the type of game Hyman plays. I think that Richie fills some of the physicality and the ability to get into corners and to, to try to get loose pucks, but he's not really doing that. He's so late to the play. It's hard for him to make an impact. And you know, I like I, both well, guys, but they're not Zach Hyman's. No, okay. but I thought I thought that they Worst tried to. I, I thought oh, yeah, they yeah, tried I agree. to bring both players together and say, you know, we have an option in case one of them is kind of on fire or whatever the case is. Uh, yeah, I, I just don't think Richie is hockey smart enough to be able to pull that kind of stuff off. He doesn't and have I, the motor. That on top of that, and at the same time, I don't think that Bunting is effective enough if he doesn't have the puck or in a scoring opportunity. I don't mean yeah. like, like th- he's not as strong as Zach Hyman either. Like Zach f- Hyman's a horse. So the initial thought of Bunting and Hyman, sorry, Bunting and Richie being the replacement for Zach Hyman has completely gone out the window with these last or these first three or four games. I just find that now the Leafs need to really look at a brand new identity. They need to figure out exactly where these guys kind of really should be slotted in. I don't really think Richie should be playing in the top six role. I think that Bunting should be the first, first line left winger. And then everybody else kind of scrambles around. So I'm trying to think of the guys that the Leafs have consciously brought in knowing that this is who we're going to try in our top six. This is who we're going to try here. Trading for Nick Foligno at the deadline. This is the type of player we've been missing. Uh, who else comes to mind? Jimmy Vesey made no sense. Uh, no <laughs> Thornton on the that top line. Don't get me started. Game no. one of the season. Still on PP1 late in the season. Ian, I mentioned this uh, to you in our last podcast with Alec, and I'll still stand by it. Richie just goes to the net. That's it. Like The faster that people accept that, like he's not getting in on the four check because he's not fast enough. Like if he gets there, he'll finish his check, whatever. But he's not doing much else. Like Zach Hyman was fast and legitimately one of the best four checkers in the league. So it's actively unfair for anybody to think that Richie was just magically going to duplicate that in what, like his fifth season of the league. He was suddenly going to become one of the best four checkers. Like it just it was never going to happen. But if you have guys that, which is really my point with with Marner and Tavares. If you have guys that dominate the puck and then Richie just goes to the net, he'll be valuable because the other guys will be controlling the puck and all Richie will do is cause chaos in front, which he's completely capable of doing. That's and like the you idea, said, though, he'll with Matthews and Marner. I know, but Matthews and Marner. star players to dominate the puck, run quick little one-twos, yeah. and then but all he's of a sudden, only boom, played Nich- one game with Matthews and Marner and Tavares did not look that good in those first three games. That's just the truth. Like they did not look good. Like they, there was uh, the one loss against Ottawa. Like they were getting snowed under with Richie until they put Nylander alongside them in the third line. Like you had to load up all three guys in order to like get value out of Marner. Like that's insane. And Tavares, like that's where they, that's where they come into problems. And which is like to Gus's point where they probably need to. And we talked about this in the off season by losing Zach Hyman, you can't load up a sick top line anymore. Unless you actively just say, screw the rest of the team, and you put Nylander up there with Matthews and Marner, they which do I that think at the end of periods, which is, which is fine in TV timeouts, but you can't like do it. it for all game because that's that's Sheldon Keefe game five against Columbus. You're cutting mm-hmm. your nose despite your face. Like, you can't do that shit. 
if you want to have a, a run, which, so I think to Gus's point, like that's where eventually they have to get back to spreading out the wealth, having a three line attack, having three guys carry a line. And then you have another guy who kind of moves around whatever floats. the case is floats. I don't know how much attacking you're doing with David camp as your third line center. Yeah, that's, and that's my only thing with him. And I love camp and I've said it all summer and I'm going to continue to give you shit about him all year. He's a good player. He's a center in the league and it's hard to find legitimate everyday centers in the league. Like if you really look at rosters and you say, can this guy actually play center? I think you have a lot more guys like Kerfoot where you squint and say, maybe then like they can actually play center. We're and not going to talk about stacked per- against him. When you look at his yeah. zone starts and his competition, so, he's still coming out great. on top. So I, I have to give him credit for that. Great addition for what he is. But honestly, if you're scoring five, even 10 goals, you can't play on the third line with like Ilya Mikheyev, who comes back after what wrist surgery and missing two months and already could barely raise the puck and like good or bad Pierre Engvall and like maybe Andre Kasha, who's sick. But well, that's, like, I'm wondering if they play Kasha with Spezza to try to get more offense there and then just go Mikheyev, Engvall, yeah. Camp, screw it. You're the defensive line. That that's where they eventually need to get to. I think they're kind of resisting it right now. I think they're going with this still heavy top six approach. And I think eventually I hope that they're going to get to a point where they spread it out a little more. And that was actually bringing me to my final point. Cause I, you know, I want to keep us on a respectable timeline. I hope everybody's enjoyed the conversation so far. I know we've definitely I need another hour on power play talk. I really need more power play. Talk. Me too. B- before we, <laughs> before we started recording, Gus had noted that he didn't think Marner should play on the penalty kill. And he has some thoughts on that, which I'll let him obviously articulate himself. I'm not going to speak for him, but one of my things as I've watched, and I agree, I don't think Marner should be playing on the penalty kill nearly as much as he does, but if they want to use him in the odd high leverage situation, go nuts. I don't care. But the PK one to me is a waste. And why I think it's a waste is I've obviously been very vocal for over a year now that his minutes are too high. And when I talk about him playing with Richie and whoever and hopping the boards and it's not electric to me, he looks like a guy that's pacing himself. And I think that's super problematic. And I think when you look back at pretty much all the best teams, what their players are doing and I haven't looked since the Rangers game, so I don't know. But after the first three games, Marner was average Average shift was like 55 seconds. And that's insane. And when you look back at, at good teams, when they're in a flow, it's like hard 35, 40 second shifts, one after the other, and it's a wave. And it's a wave. But you can't get that A, when you load up your top six, and B, when you're telling this guy to do everything under the sun all the time. And he doesn't look to me like a guy who's hopping the boards and getting absolutely after it. He looks like a guy who's sitting there. And it's like, if anybody's ever played a men's league game where you have eight guys show up and you're like, I don't want to rip one end to end this shift because I know I'm going to be shit for my next three. That's what he looks like. He looks like a That's guy in university like, ball hockey yeah. when no one showed up for service. <laughs> I can't run down the, I can't run Everybody down the court. Things. Now I need to pick and choose my spots because I'm playing a shitload tonight. And that's such a waste because Back in the day, when I think of original vintage Minch Marner, I think of the Bozak JVR line and he's playing his 17, 18 a night. But every time he hopped the boards, you were interested. And he doesn't have that at all. And I think that's the ice time effect. Gus, make your case for Mitch Marner not playing on the penalty kill anymore. So I don't, I, I had to move to another room. So I lost all my stats. But if I recall correctly, he has six 
penalty killing points in his career. So that spans from 2018-19. So before I get into him specifically, if you have to talk of one of the most rigid and structured plays or situations in hockey, the penalty kill must be one of those. So you have structure in the zone trying to defend, you have structure in the neutral zone, and then there's a creativity factor in the offensive zone if you have a puck. If you're going to go to a power kill type of mentality where you're trying to generate and load up offensively because you have the kind of star players to do that, then Marner deserves to be on the power play. I don't think that that's what the Leafs have designed. Their pen, I'm sorry, they're, uh, on the penalty kill. I don't think that that's how the Leafs have designed it. And I just don't find that his offensive skill set is really being leveraged in this situation. So if I recall correctly, players like Darren Helm um, and, and like depth players were getting similar points, expected goals, scoring chances. Why do you need to play a Marner on the penalty kill if he's not, A, generating scoring chances and taking time away from the, uh, the power play team? And I find that the penalty kill being so structured, you should be able to put any player in that situation and be effective to kill the penalty. If you're not looking to score goals, you could play your fourth line and a portion of your third line as penalty killers, kill that penalty off, move on, and you give your star forwards the, uh, the ability to come in after the shift because you know that the other team is going to be putting their star players on the shift. So I just find that if the Leafs really do want to go to that power kill, that's fine. Give Marner his chance. Give Nylander his chances. Give all the stars a chance to start generating scoring chances on the penalty kill. That's not their design. I think that Marner should be removed. That's a good point. I've never really thought about it like that. But like to be honest, at the end of the day, and I know I remember having these conversations with Ian like originally way back in the day about PK and putting stars there. But it's like if you're going to put a star there and they're not going to produce offensively or create, which sounds weird to say because you're trying to kill a penalty. But like at the end of the day, if you're just going to put a guy out there and he's just not going to score and he's going to kill penalties and get off the ice, you can find a bunch of guys who gives a shit like you can find a million guys to do that. What's the difference in value between a Mitch Marner and Ilya Mikheyev or Pierre Engvall in the defensive zone exclusively? Right. Like yeah. like Bergeron and Marchand play PK, obviously, but they score like they Marchand's make, the top scorer on yeah, the PK in the last couple he years. He genuinely yeah. makes teams pay. Like if you were going to sit there and be like, uh, like, let's say if Marner's an eight on the PK and someone else is a seven and a half over the course of a season, who cares? That's why I said high leverage situation. Go for it. Go nuts. But like every day it's first period and you guys got a penalty. Like, does he need to go out there? No. Like, give some other guys some purpose. In points per 60 on the PK since 2018, because I know that was a year that Gus brought up, Marner is 49th. So that's not bad, but it's not the elite Brad Marchand territory. Nobody nobody in their pre-scout is saying, watch out for Mitch on the PK. He'll make us pay. Let me make the case for Mitch Marner on the PK, because I've always advocated for more star players to play on the PK, because I think it's an avenue to impact the outcome of the game. Goal rates are at their highest in five on four situations. They they go up. So it's more beneficial to you as a team defensively to have your best players out there to be preventing goals for those two minutes. And offensively, goal rates actually go up in the PK. Teams actually score way more four and five than I think you'd realize. So even though Mitch Marner may not be producing at that Brad Marchand level, I like the idea of having a guy out there who, when he intercepts a pass going across back to the defenseman, 
he can make a play happen on two on one instead of just dumping it in. And also, but he's not Marner does not to the elite rate, but also like that skill is a way to play keep away on the PK. Probably not even a great rate. Well, okay, but more to my point is that if you let's say you have the puck as a skilled player and you intercept it, how many seconds can you play keep away from the opposition if you're a skilled player versus if you're a fourth line grinder? Are we talking about the same Mitch Marner though? Like, like you're making it sound like he laps the zone with the puck. Like I don't see him do much. He he skates it up, skates it back down. He does. He makes. He some used plays. to when Babcock had him. Like originally, originally back in the like he wasn't playing twenty five minutes a night territory. He would because he had energy. If you've seen Mitch Marner at his best. I'm thinking London Knights. Mitch Marner. agreed, but this He's... not. We're not getting London Knights. Mitch Marner. We're getting. I'm a penalty killer. Mitch Marner. I shoot the puck down maybe once he in a while. Penalties I hold on for the to London it. Knights. No, I know, but I'm saying like. <laughs> He, he doesn't kill penalties in the NHL today the way that he did in London. Yeah, he treated it almost and, like a power play. Yeah, like he's not he's not getting the puck because he was good enough. And like he was like older that once he got older, too, it was like I'm 18 and I'm like killing a penalty against the his last year in the OHL was good night. Yeah. yeah, but like we're not watching him like make plays and hold the puck and like be sick on the penalty. kill. I'm just watching a penalty killer to Gus was just like he's a guy taking shifts on the penalty kill. Whether I like he's Gus's argument when it comes to let's say you have a super duper star at five on five and five on four. Austin Matthews comes to mind. Why would I waste his minutes at four on five where he's merely okay? Wouldn't I want to save those minutes for where he can really make an impact yeah, on that's... the outcome of the game? And yeah, that's... I think that's our point across the board. Like save it to have that extra energy, that extra boost. Like how many times over the last like year and a half have we watched the Leafs where they're down a goal with like five minutes left? And Marner and Matthews have zero gas left. Like they're not even making a push. Especially like, last season. Last season yeah. was pretty dramatic in terms like, of their ice time. It reminded me of McKinnon and Drysaddle just playing so much that by the end McDavid? of the season, they're just, yeah, they're dragging their feet. Yeah. And it's like, it's who cares? Like you're, it's about like pacing, like you're not like pacing yourself throughout the game to just like run out of gas at the end, but like you need to like save, but they're like, there's been so many times where Leafs just haven't had anything to make like a final push. And that's where, that's where I have a hard time. I got in a lot of shit for this in the summer from people and I just don't think they were ready for it, but I kind of put a bunch of blame on the coaching staff, an article for the ice time and basically saying that they're setting up Matthews and Marner to fail by playing them too much. And you could say that Matthews and Marner are complicit in their ice time being so high. And I would take that argument, but at the end of the day, like if you're the coach, you have to make the best decision for the overall team and part of that's like playing them at a number where they're going to be good throughout the game. Not like you're very, if you're getting like a marginal upgrade at best on the penalty kill in order to watch these guys have no energy left with five minutes left, it's not worth it. So I just kind of want to end on, on one note here. One, I absolutely love the description that you talked about. Ian. That's the power kill. I can use players offensively, keep it away from the power play team, um, blah, 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 blah. So the counterpoint to that is a penalty killer has to be physical. He's going to block shots. Do you want your stars doing that? If they're not generating scoring chances, he's going to be hurt more. Or the risk, I should say, of him being hurt is at this point, in my opinion, because I need to kind of do a little bit more research to make sure that I'm valid, um, than his scoring prowess or the ability to kill a penalty more effectively. So I find that that risk is not an acceptable risk in my eyes. I might be wrong. 
I always thought that way, but then I saw a study that showed there was no correlation between time on ice and the penalty kill and injuries. And I found that fascinating because I thought there would be. I, I feel like I feel like that would be a tough thing to quantify. And I'm pretty sure Gus was at this with me at one of the ho- the hockey coaches conferences a few years ago. I don't know if you remember this, Gus. There was um, a sports science presentation and they were essentially saying that like every injury, like most injuries that pro athletes suffer start at the ankle, but they don't really know it. Like it, it'll like, you'll take a puck off the ankle and then you're like a step behind. And then it works your way up to like your knee or your groin or your hip. And then that ends up being the injury. And it's not credited for that puck. You took off the ankle like two weeks ago, but it slowly starts to chip away at your body movement. And then it leads to an injury of legitimate significance which is to say i get that kind of study but i don't think that people would have the right data publicly unless it was a private study and they really dug in on the league itself to like make that kind of educated assumption across the board i mean at the end of the day it just makes sense like i don't want top players blocking shots in october austin matthews took a slap shot off of shea weber last year and never saw the light of day on the penalty kill again yeah, he was like, oh, you're talking about like he saw it coming. He's like, I'm out. I, I'm, I'm this out. sucks. No, thank you. Like, like so, the Leafs used to use Sundin and McGillney, but like yeah. not not during like it was like Fitzgerald. You got out there for this PK in like a Tuesday in November, whoever so the case is. Overall, what I think Mitch Marner's penalty kill performance, and again, I probably need to do a bit more of a deeper dive. It was one of those fleeting thoughts as I was kind of watching against the Rangers. Marner's performance on the penalty kill, I'll use an example. Suppose you go out on a date, and the date is pretty good. You feel like you've had a pretty good time. Honestly. But the reality is the partner that you're going out on a date with didn't really share that same feeling. So now you have Marner feeling great. I'm killing penalties. I'm killing penalties. But in the end, he's just not producing very well. You were just good company. He was good company. That's all Marner is on the power play to me at this point in time. One thought I want to finish this on is while we're talking about PK1, Mitch Marner there, PK2 is where you'll see a lot of teams play their star players, their offensive players, and you can take advantage of a defense much better on PK2 than you can on PK1. I remember trying to do a zone start adjustment for penalty kill numbers because I found that if you started on PK1, you got shelled, especially if you lost that initial faceoff. Because you're stuck in your own end. The other team's already set up. It's really hard to suppress shots and suppress chances when the other team's set up in formation. Whereas if you start a shift on PK2, the puck's been iced. You're in a neutral zone trap. All you have to do is stop them from gaining the zone. And if they turn the puck over, you have a rush chance available to you. And this is why the Leafs, they're playing William Nylander on PK2 right now. Is that the best spot for him long-term? Is he going to play that in game seven of a close playoff game? Maybe not, but I think it's good for him, A, defensively, to try to just feel like he has more of an impact on the outcome of a game defensively, but also he's good at neutral zone defense. He's good you at think taking that away What, the first part? Yeah. Like, do you think uh, it matters? Like, if over Nylander an feels game good season, maybe. And that's the thing. I'm a nerd. You know, I'm of the opinion these guys are all robots, and I just care about my expected goals at the end of the day. But I don't give a shit if he sits there and he's like, <laughs> oh, I care. I've contributed defensively on this PK, too. 
I, fit, I want, that. Get off the I want Elander to care more defensively because of how talented he is with the puck. I think that's every coach who's ever coached him his entire life. <laughs> but the point I wanted to make is if you're a star player, I think you're much better served on PK two than you're on PK one. Cause there's more opportunities for you to take a turnover and generate a rush chance. Whereas if you're on PK one, you're basically given that David camp usage where you're just stuck in the defensive zone and you're praying that you can get it out. It's very difficult to generate any offense from that. So just two things on that note. One, I think for David Kemp, what you should start looking for is just how close is he to the proximity of the puck? I think structurally he's very capable of doing something as long as he's within that perimeter. I'll give it a stick length, maybe two stick lengths at the bat, at most. Um, so it's above and beyond just um, being kind of cratered in the defensive zone. I think that he does a lot of other things that will. Um, the second, I just don't think that Mitch Marner is that good defensively. You guys can all make that argument, but there are times on the ice where I just say, this guy is just not playing defense, but he's just on the ice. I don't think he's Why do I care? Enough. He intercepts passes really well, but I know what you're saying when it comes to getting into those 50-50 puck battles with someone bigger than him. He doesn't have that Braden point feist to him. I know so- I said we're not going to talk about him, but like I just have to say it because it just... <laughs> I laughed, to be honest, when I saw it. And the five on three that they killed against Ottawa, Kerfoot had a chance to clear the puck and, or sorry, against Montreal. Kerfoot had a chance to clear the puck and he didn't. And then Caulfield basically should have walked in and scored and he fell down while he was winding up the shot. I remember that. Yep. And I, after, and Camp did a good job on the PK up till that point. And then Kerfoot came on and did that. And like after the game, everyone was like, what a great job by Kerfoot on the penalty kill. I'm like, Caulfield fell. <laughs> like, like he could have swung his stick like a helicopter. Nobody was near him. He fell. That was like actually that was Dubis's burner account that made that. <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's like what I I don't want to talk anymore about Kerfoot. It's gonna make me mad. I just I was like everyone is fooled. I'm sorry, you are all fooled. Like Keith brought him up his his play in the playoffs. You guys are fooled. I'm sorry. If, if he it's plays with Nylander, I think he'll do well, but I think every NHL forward will do well if they play with William Nylander. You sure, put him with a star? Absolutely. No he kidding. skated fast alongside a guy who's also fast, but actually good. Congrats. So remember, guys, defense is about not about shot suppression. I just find that that's too easy uh, um, an argument to make. Defense is about getting pucks back. So Marner has a chance to be in a defensive situation. I think that you're looking at Isolating a puck carrier, getting to that puck carrier in numbers, overpowering, getting the puck back, transitioning out. So I'm not saying that Marner is not very good defensively. I just don't think that he has specific skills to be able to say that he contributes defensively using what I would define as defense, getting pucks back. So his creativity and playmaking, I think, overshadows. And it really kind of... it. I shouldn't say overshadows. It puts his, his offense puts his defense on a higher pedestal than I feel that he deserves. I think and that's I, the case with a lot of players. Remember when Cad was Selkie talk? Yeah. Absolutely. Oh my God, the Selkie talk. He made a damn comment to Babcock. Babcock says, yeah, he wants to win the Selkie. So I'm going to put him into situations where he could do that. All of a sudden, Kadri is a Selkie candidate. Get the fuck out of here. Like a little <laughs> Can I just say, too, because I feel like we've been tough on Marner and I don't actually think that's the intention. It's more to say, Correct. let him be the 95 point player yes. that he is by not yes. gassing him on the penalty kill 
and not putting him in situations on the power play where he's not going to succeed yes. and instead he looks like a lost puppy. Yes. So I want to play him to his strengths. Like, I want to milk yes, we, like every ounce yes. of elite hockey I yes. can get out of yes. this player. We all think he's sick. So I don't want anyone to sit there and be like, you guys just spent an hour shitting on Martin. And I'm sure someone's going to say it. It's more to say you think he's unreal, but let him be unreal. And the way that you are using him right now is not letting him be his best self. And that's hurting the team as a whole. And it pisses me off to watch. And I still can't believe that Alex Kerfoot's a Toronto Maple Leaf. And that's it <sighs> yeah. for me tonight. I'm going to agree with all of that and say, Gus, I really enjoyed this conversation, especially the power play stuff. We'll have to have you on at some point in the future. Anything you'd like to plug before we go? Guys, just thank you very much for the opportunity here. It's absolutely phenomenal. Um, I'm doing stuff still with McKean's Hockey, and I'm going to be doing a weekly article on NBC Sports Edge. It's analytically focused. I just hey. don't like the fact that I use analytically because that's not what analytics is. Analytics is the study of numbers. Analytically is uh, a process. So, uh, but the fact is that I still love numbers as much as tactics. I think they both have a, a, a symbiotic relationship. I can't put it all together because of just time constraints and all of that, but it's fascinating. Um, but in the end, I actually want to just say thank you very much to you guys. And when I'm not on this podcast, I love listening to you. I love the bickering between you guys. It's playful, but <laughs> effective. Your guests are phenomenal. So just keep on doing the good stuff. Hey, thanks, buddy. Me and Anthony, I think we come from different schools of thought at times, and there's mutual respect sometimes, but I do like the, the <laughs> discussion that we, we create when we go back and forth on topics. So it's taking, really me, it's taking me some time, but I'm teaching Ian about hockey as we go along. Wow. I'll teach you about expected it. goals, buddy. You'll get there one day. I understand. I brought up the expected <laughs> goals topic. It was me that said I wanted to talk about it. I always love it when you're the one talking about the numbers. I'm like, great. I don't need to do it. Just let Anthony yeah. do it. Too. Can, I, can I make one request? Can yeah. we intro this with like a Greek song? No, absolutely no? not. <laughs> no. Absolutely not. Gus, this was your last time on. Thanks for coming, buddy. All right. Is, is Gus Katsaros Greek? Katsaros? <laughs> no way. All right, let's get out of here, guys. This is a great night. We'll talk soon. Thanks, guys. Take care, guys.